0: Alrighty. Well, um, if you live long enough, you will suffer. There's the bad news this morning. Uh, uh, You'll contract cancer or Alzheimer's, you'll get hit by a bus, or you'll lose your job, your wife, your husband, or your kids. All you have to do is live long enough. Suffering is inevitable. And there's no book in the Bible, and perhaps no book in all of world literature, that looks at the question of suffering with the honesty, realism, and wisdom that the book of Job does. 42 chapters, which is designed to help us understand God's purpose when we suffer and when evil happens in the world. We're in this series, People in Prayer, and the question this week is, well, how do you pray when you're in the midst of suffering, when everything's been ripped away from you and you feel like God is against you? Because the book of Job, it contains the cry of a tortured man who cannot understand the ways of God. And so if you're unfamiliar with the story, we've just heard chapter one, and this is what happens. We're introduced to Job, and we're told from the first sentence that he, uh, he was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So right from the beginning, the narrator wants you to know that what is about to happen to Job is not because he has sinned, that he is an innocent sufferer. Everything about to happen to him is not because he deserves it. And then what happens in chapter one, his wealth is taken away, his cows, his donkeys, his sheep. And then Worst of all, his 10 or nine children uh, die in a tragic house collapse, and uh, and he loses everyone. And at the end of that, he says, of God, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we know that this very thing has happened because Satan has walked into the very throne room of God and accused Job to God's face, saying, God... God boasts about Job, have you seen my servant Job? There is no one like him in all the world. He is righteous and blameless and upright. And what does Satan do? He's cynical, cynical about love. He says, does he love you for no reason at all? The only reason he loves you is because you've blessed him and put a hedge of protection around him. Take all of that away, God, and he'll curse you. And God says to um, Satan, okay, you can do whatever you like to him, just don't touch Job's body. Satan does it, everything's stripped away and at the end Job is still praising God, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Chapter 2 comes around and Satan's not happy, he comes back into the throne room of God, accuses Job again before God's face saying, you know, uh, you know the only reason he loves you God is because he's still got his health. Yes, everything else's been taken away but he's got to take away his health and we'll see his true heart. And God says to Job, okay, go for it. You can, you can do what you want to Job, and, um, but just don't kill him. And we read verse 7 of chapter 2, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat in the ashes." This time his wife comes to him and says, just curse God and guy. God hates you. And Job says, shall we receive good from God and not trouble? In other words, he's still praising God. Twice, God has allowed Satan to attack Job. Twice, Satan says, "Uh, I'm going to do this to Job. And God says, I'll let you do that, but I won't this far and no further. And these things happen by God's permission. Two things, very important from chapters one and two. One, Job is innocent. Two, everything that happens to Job comes by the permission of God. And perhaps that raises many questions for you. Why would God allow that? Why would God enter into a bargain with Satan? Why would he allow Satan to do this? If God loves Job, why is there so much suffering? Why all of his kids taken away? And there are three basic answers to that question that people have tried to deal with in their lives. Three basic, um, three basic questions. One is dualism, one is uh, cynicism, and the other is moralism. The dualistic answer is this. Many people embrace this answer. It says, well, the reason there's suffering in the world is because there's both good and there's evil in the world. And there's almost this competition between the forces of good and evil. They are two equal and opposite forces in the world locked in perpetual conflict. And so good things happen because of the good force in the world and bad things happen because of the bad thing, bad force in the world. And it's a very compelling theory. And sometimes us Christians, we like this theory. We blame suffering on Satan himself. The reason you suffer is not because God's against you. It's not because God's doing anything to you. It's because Satan is. He is responsible for the evil and suffering in the world. Now, the problem with this view is it's simply not taught in the Bible. The Bible consistently teaches that God is sovereign, in control, majestic ruler of all things, that nothing happens in our world apart from his will. His rule may be opposed by the forces of evil, but it's never thwarted by them. And so in chapter 1 and 2, Satan has to ask God's permission before he afflicts Job himself. All the way through Job's situation, God is never out of control and Job acknowledges that. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Shall we accept good from God and not evil? Consistently, we're told that God somehow is behind what Satan is doing here. Satan means it for evil, God means it for good, Can't see how that's the case, but that's the promise of Scripture. And so we can't save God the embarrassment of evil and suffering by blaming it on the devil. Satan would have no power except for that which God gives it. So if Satan isn't to blame, the second kind of attitude we sometimes take is the path of cynicism Um, and then moralism. Actually, let me do moralism first. Moralism says that The reason there's evil and suffering in the world is because God is letting bad people suffer. Good people don't suffer. Bad people suffer. And so if you're suffering, you're not living right. You're not going to church enough. You're not praying enough. You're not giving enough. You don't have enough faith. That's the reason for suffering. The moralistic attitude is that suffering is payback from God. And as you're suffering, you call out, you cry, God, why are you punishing me? What what am I doing that's wrong? And that's the moralistic attitude to suffering. And that's the very attitude Job's friends in the book of Job take. Consistently from chapter three all the way to chapter 36, I think it is, Job has three friends and they keep saying to Job, Job, (laughs) you think you're blameless, you think you're innocent, but we all know that bad things don't happen to good people the reason you're suffering right now is because somehow, somewhere, you've sinned and you haven't repented and you need to repent. And it's a very plausible argument as you read it, right? And um, we're debating this even in the staff team this week, but it's very clear from Job chapter 1 verse 1 that Job was innocent. He was blameless. He shunned evil and feared God. Doesn't mean he was perfect, it means that there was no unrepentant, ongoing sin in his life. And he doesn't deserve it. So the moralistic attitude is wrong as well. It's the view taken by Job's three friends. And then there's the other approach is the cynical attitude. Whereas religious people tend to see suffering as punishment, secular people tend to see suffering as just the randomness of life. It's a random thing. That life is a lucky dip. Religious people tend to believe, well, if you're living a good life, that's because you're a good person. If you're living a bad life, that's because you've done bad things. Secular people tend to say, well, no, there is no God, and the suffering proves there is no God. Um, Because if there is a God, then he must be completely incompetent or indifferent to us. That there is suffering that shows there is no God, or to heck with him, because how could I... Trust God when He allows this kind of evil and suffering in the world. So, there's the three ways most of us try and deal with the problem of pain and the problem of evil in the world. Dualism, which is based on the idea that there are two equal forces in the world, one good, one evil, and they're constantly battling, the reason bad things happen is because of Satan or the evil forces. The second one is moralism, that the reason there are good things and bad things is because there are good people and bad people. And thirdly, cynicism is the idea that there's no rhyme nor readom. Everything's a matter of chance. There is no God, and if there really was, he would be an absolute lunatic for allowing the things that he allows. So there's the approaches, and each one of them is wrong. Because what we're told in Job chapter 1 is that um, the, the brilliance of Job chapter 1 is we see the, asymmetri- the asymmetrical uh, relationship of God to both suffering and evil. No other philosophy, no other religion teaches that. So you notice in Job 1, Satan, it's Satan's idea that all these bad things would happen to Job, not God's. God doesn't come up with the idea. It's Satan's idea And it's Satan who implements his plan. God does not actually, actively, directly generate suffering. Do you notice that? Satan does. He goes and does it. And it's similar to the way God made the world. God made the world. He didn't make disease in it. He didn't make natural disasters. He didn't create death. The world was not a place of death. He didn't directly make them, but the forces of darkness were unleashed when we turned away from God. We unleashed the forces of darkness. And so on the one hand, we see that God is not actively, deliberately, desiringly, intentionally creating the suffering that goes into Job's life or our life. It's Satan's doing, and yet behind Satan, God is absolutely in control. There aren't kind of these two forces wrestling it out. God is totally in charge, overruling the evil. He permits it. He says, very well, Satan, you can do this, but you cannot touch Job himself. And then chapter two, okay, you can touch Job himself, but you cannot take his life. God is totally in charge. And my question, your question is, well, why would God allow this? And the answer to that question is, we don't know. There's 42 chapters of Job. We don't know. Uh, God hates the suffering and the evil in the world on the one hand, and yet he's in control of it. You can't say God loves to see people suffer. He doesn't. He hates it. And yet for some reason, which we are not told, he permits it. And Job knows all of that. He doesn't blame Satan for the suffering. He blames God. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. He doesn't turn away from God, he turns to God. And he rejects moralism despite his friends debating him chapter after chapter after chapter saying, Job, you must have done the wrong thing. He's like, I'm innocent, I'm not perfect, but I haven't done anything to deserve this. And so the question that we have today is, well, what do you do when you're placed in that situation, when you're suffering innocently and you're wondering, why has God done this? And the answer to that question is what we call prayer of lament, now, what is a lament? A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. The Bible is filled with songs, of, songs and prayers of pain and sorrow. And they're different from crying because lament is a form of prayer where we talk to God about our pain. Now, this is, um, I think, the best book I've read on lament, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vragop, don't know how to pronounce his last name, and just so happens to be a free book that the Gospel Coalition are giving away this month, and uh, I think that's posted on our social media feed, so you can get this for free—a at a free uh, ebook on social media. But in this book, he says there are four parts to lament. Firstly, you turn to God. Secondly, you bring your complaints. Thirdly, you ask boldly for help. And fourthly, you choose to trust. Not always in that linear order, because when we're suffering, sometimes we jump all over the place, but this is the pattern that not only can you observe from the book of Job and many of the Psalms, but you can practice this when God feels very far away from you. And I want to show you this pattern in the prayers of Job. And uh, so the first one we're going to have a look at is the first thing you do is you turn to God. Unfortunately, pain creates a strong temptation to give God the silent treatment. Uh, It causes us to retreat from the one who knows our sorrows. But lament, rather than retreating, it's a turning towards God when you're tempted to run away. And so open up Job chapter 7 verse 10 because this is what we read there, chapter 7, verse 10, and we're going to jump all the way around Job today. Job chapter 7, verse 10, this is Job's first prayer. He says, Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eye that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. So there's Job's first prayer. He turns to God. In prayer, come over to chapter 13 where Job prays. What Job says, one of the most striking things, chapter 13, verse 5. Um, 13, verse 5. Maybe it's not verse 5, I've lost the passage. 15, chapter 13, verse 15. Though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. What a statement! That God is doing all of this to me, and yet rather than run away from him, I'm going to turn to him. You know, it's like, um, what is it? Is it Peter who says, you know, Jesus has been teaching some difficult things, and a bunch of disciples stop following Jesus from that point forward. I think Jesus just told them, I'm going to suffer and die in Jerusalem, and all of Jesus' disciples leave him. And, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, are you going to stay around? And he says, where else have we to go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's Job. Despite all that's happening to him, despite the fact that he feels his suffering is completely unjust and undeserved, despite feeling like God is doing this to him, he turns to that God. He refuses to let go of God despite the death, the disease, the isolation, Uh, even feeling as though God's abandoned him. He looks around, even his own wife is saying, curse God and die. But Job keeps wrestling with God and he doesn't turn away. Um, And it's interesting, you know, the miserable comforters come to Job and uh, they they tell Job, look, the reason you're suffering is because you've sinned against God, etc., etc., And oftentimes in our suffering that's happened. I was listening to this week a story of a lady who in one week had the grief of losing her father, her sister, her husband, her brother-in-law and her best friend. five close people in her life died within one week of each other. And she was asked about whether people said helpful things to her. And she said, no, no one did. And these are the things she said, people said, you must have sinned in your life. You must deserve this. You must have no faith. You're a Christian, you shouldn't grieve but be happy. This is the kind of things Job's friends say to him. She said, the worst thing someone said to her was a guy who said, I know what to do when we lose things, just replace them and carry on. Awful. She said, you know, 4,000 years after the book of Job and those friends in the book of Job just seemed to jump off the page and knock on my door, saying terrible things. They shut their eyes to reality that here is a woman suffering something completely unjust. And yet, going through that, she said that I turned to the book of Job to find out how to answer my opponent's. And, uh, and that's Joe. No one else in his life's encouraging him. He even feels like God's against him. And yet it's to God that he turns. That's the first thing you do in lament. Second thing, you bring your complaints. You make your complaints. You express honestly your hurt, your doubt, your disappointment, your fears, and whatever other emotions that you have, and you express them to God. If you feel like you're drowning, you tell God that. You tell him you're overwhelmed. You tell him you're helpless. You tell him you're ashamed, you're afraid. You're, you don't think what's happening to you is fair. You complain to him. Now, to be honest, that's the opposite thing I do. I complain to everyone else. And the last person I start complaining to is complaining to God. But Job, he doesn't have anyone else to complain to. They don't listen to him. They don't back him up. And so he complains to God. So open your Bibles, listen to what God's, Job says in chapter 10. It's just brutal what he says. Chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I loathe my, listen to how he complains. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges you have against me. God, does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? It feels like the wicked are getting away. Their life's easy, and I plea- I'm doing the right thing, and you're against me. What's going on? Verse 8, your hands have shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? I'm your creation. How could you treat your creation this way? Verse 18, why? Did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I'd died before any eye saw me. And verse 20, turn away from me that I can have a moment's joy. God, get off my back. Just give me some. break. Give me a break. Turn away from me so that I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and utter darkness, to the land of deepest night, of utter darkness and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Job feels like the light of God's love has disappeared and he's plunged into darkness. And he's telling God that. He's complaining, God, why are you doing this? If you come over to chapter 30, listen to the way Job complains. Verse 16 of chapter 30. This is what Job says. He says, my, And now my life, it ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, verse 19, God throws me into the mud. And I'm reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand up, but you merely look on me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and you drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man, when he cries for help in distress, no one in the world would turn against a broken man. I, have I not wept for those in trouble? Has my soul not grieved for the poor? I have. I see people are suffering, and my heart goes out to them. Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I looked for light, then came darkness. God, you haven't been compassionate to me the churning inside me, it never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and I cry for help and no one answers me. God, why the heck are you doing this to me? He doesn't hold back. He doesn't spout platitudes He doesn't understand why he's suffering, and so he pours his heart out to God. Every thought, every emotion, his depression, his anger, his confusion. Now, often we don't pray like this. We think it would be unrighteous to pray like this. But I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we must learn to lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. That you tell God what's really going on inside of yourself. I was listening to one person this week and, you know, they were reflecting on Job. In Job, sometimes he says the wrong thing about God. And many times he's saying terrible things about God, untrue things about God. And uh, why, why does God at the end say that Job has spoken about him rightly you know, right at the end, God says, "Job honored me," and He actually turns to Job's friends and say to Job, "You better pray for your friends because they've spoken wrongly about me." So, Job's honored uh, by the end, and yet, um, why in the world, after all those terrible prayers, would God say that Job honored God? And uh, and the answer to that question is because they were prayers. Job was being angry. He was complaining. He was being angry, but he was complaining to God. And he never walked away from God, saying, God, I don't understand you. God, I'm angry about things that are going on in my life. But he never turns away from God. Though God slay me, yet I will put my hope in him. He stayed with God even when he was not getting anything out of it, which means in the end, Satan was wrong about Job. Satan says, does Job love you for nothing? God, you've protected him, you've blessed him. And actually, the whole point of Job is Job gets vindicated because when everything's stripped away, he's still turning to the Lord. He's still praying. He says, darkness is my closest friend, but he sang it to God, which means Satan is defeated. And it means when you go through darkness, if you don't feel God's there, You ought to hold on anyway. That's faith. That's trust. That's Job. He makes his complaint to God and he makes it very directly. Thirdly, you make your complaint. Thirdly, you ask for help. Job is in so much pain that essentially he has two requests for God. He says, either kill me here and now or give me an audience with you so that I can plead my case. So chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me and let loose his hands and cut off my life. It's like, God, just kill me. This is too much. That's the first thing he asked for. The second thing he asked for is in chapter 13, verse 21, where he says, God, withdraw your hand from me then summon me and I'll answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? You hear what he's saying? He's like, God, either kill me or vindicate me. Let me talk to you. Let me understand what's going on. Job is getting specific. He's asking specifically for God to do two things. He's saying, "God, show up. God, act. God, bring justice. Show me why this is happening." And it reminds me of that parable Jesus tells to an oppressed about an oppressed widow. Do you remember this one? Who kept coming to the judge with the plea, "Grant me justice against my adversary." Do you remember that parable? She keeps coming and pestering, and finally the judge gives the widow justice. Not because he was a righteous judge, but because she pestered him. And Jesus concludes And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? And the point of Jesus' parable is twofold. One, we should be confident God hears us, but two, we should also be very patient with God's timing. Because often he doesn't come the first time we pray. And it takes a long time. It takes 30-something chapters before which God shows up for Job. He keeps asking for help. And his friends keep attacking him. He keeps asking for help. And there's no answer for many, 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 many chapters. And then finally God does show up. And the example is you ask and you wait. The fourth thing you do in lament is you choose to trust. Because um, after 35 chapters, back and forth between Job and his friends, God finally speaks from the whirlwind. And finally, the final things we hear from Job right at the end, turn over to chapter 42, Job, after hearing God speak to him from the whirlwind, Job replies to the Lord, chapter 42, verse two. I know, God, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I'll speak, I'll question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What I said about you, I take back. And uh, and that's Job. By the end of it, he comes to a place where he's able to trust God. Um, However, for many years, I found this resolution very, very unsatisfying. And perhaps you do as well. I really struggled with it. And, um, and the reason for that is, and perhaps the first time you read Job, the reason for this is Job, there he is. He's suffering terribly. He's been through hell and back, and he wants to know why. And in, when God does speak, the surprise is God never tells him why. You know more than Job. God doesn't tell him about Satan and the bargain in heaven and It doesn't tell him about that one day Job is going to be read 4,000 years later in a church in Surrey Hills and this this book is going to profoundly help us and billions of others throughout history, right? Job never hears any of that. And uh, there are no explanations and God gives no comfort at all. So come back to chapter 38 because this is when God first speaks And you tell me how you would feel if you'd voiced all of this complaint to God. And this is how God replied to you. Chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you shall answer me. And what follows is God... Just drilling into Job, question after question. Job, were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Were you there when I gave orders to the morning and set the dawn in its place? Surely you were there when that happened, Job. Were you there when I set doors and bars on the vast oceans and said to them, go here but no further? Surely you were there, Job. Surely you're so old, you're so wise, you're so great. Surely the lightning bolts report to you. Is that right, Job? They come to you, they say, hey, here we are, where do you want us to go today? Surely that must be true of you. And after a full chapter of God just drilling into Job saying, are you God? Are you sure you control everything? Are you sure you know how to run the world? After a chapter of that, you notice Job taps out, Uh where is it? Um, uh, chapter 40, verse 4. Job says, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I've put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I've got no answer to these questions, God. And you think, okay, God's got to let up. No, God goes for it again. <laughs> chapter 40. He says again, brace yourself like a man. I'll question you. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? Are you calling me unjust? Are you saying I don't know what's going on in the world? Do you have an arm like my arm? Can you adorn yourself with the glory? He keeps pressing Job. He's saying, Are you calling me unjust? How about you, Job? You try your hand at justice. You know, do you know how to bring down the proud and lift up the lowly? Do you know how to crush the wicked where they stand? Do you know how to bury them in the dust? Can your hand really save you? And there's no explanation for why Job is suffering. Job, God does not tell Job, "Here's why this has happened." And God doesn't even comfort him. It's like God doesn't even say, "Look, Job, I know this is hard. I see what you're going through. My heart breaks at the pain you're you're under. I'm with you in it. I'm going to come and rescue you soon." Just hold out, Job. I have a plan in it. God doesn't say that at all. There's none of that. And yet, the final chapter, Job is utterly changed. He gets the resolution to his suffering that he needed, even though he's not told why he's suffering. You know, last week I said, this is a quote from Tim Keller, that God will either give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for, had we known what God knows? And Job doesn't get what he asked for. He doesn't get the answer to the why question, why is this happening to me? But he does get the answer he needed and it satisfies him, it changes him, it heals him, it gives him perspective and comfort. Chapter 42, verse two, I know now, God, that you can do all things and no purpose of yours is, can be thwarted. My eyes have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and this was enough to put Job's turbulence to rest. The anger goes away. The pride is humble. He is changed. He is satisfied, and uh, and God finally says, "You have responded rightly." And Job ends up vindicated in front of his friends. God comes to his friends and say, "You've spoken evil of me. Job's spoken well of me." you ought to ask your friend Job to pray for you. Otherwise, I'm going to come and smite you. And Job prays for the friends, and they're forgiven for that as well. But, um, you know, I think the reason we struggle... Now, is it just me, or do you struggle with this ending, (laughs) right? I'm still a bit like, (laughs) if I were God, I I wouldn't be doing this, right? But, uh, you know, I think the reason we struggle with the ending of Job is because we don't want a God who has reasons for suffering that he will not tell us. We want the answers now. But the story of Job is designed to get us to the same point as him that we might recognize that God is God, that we don't run the world, that he is better at it than us. And the book of Job is written to correct any person who could imply... That they could do a better job of running the world than God could. Because what chapter 40 is all about, God starts laying into Job saying, You really think you could bring justice in the world? I mean, you just have to look at Palestine, Israel right now. Anyone got any solutions? I got no solutions. Do you want there to be a ceasefire? But what about those Israelites who are held captive? Like, what do you do in this situation? How do you end the escalating cycles of justice? And it's as though God says, I alone have the power and wisdom to deal with the problem of evil and suffering. Here are three questions. One, how is it possible to eradicate evil, to humble the proud and crush the wicked and yet not create a power that becomes a new tyrant? How is it possible to crush evil and yet not create another power that becomes evil itself? Do you know how to do that? I don't know how to do that. Second question, how is it possible to eradicate evil and yet save some who are evil? How do you get rid of evil from every human heart and yet save some of those who have evil in their heart? Do you know how to do that? I have no idea how to do that. Third question, how is it possible to eradicate evil and ensure it never comes back again? Do you know how to do that? I don't know how to do that. And this is what God is saying to Job all the way through his speech. He's like, Job, I know how to do this. And deep buried in the heart of God, is, is, is uh, he's preparing Job for something that he will never live to see but we have seen. See, the resolution to evil in the world and the suffering in the world, uh, the defeat of sin and Satan and death, the only way that God was able to defeat it in such a way that he's able to make forgiveness possible to evil people and in a way where sin never comes back again, the only way God to do that is his plan to enter our world, to humble himself, to go to the cross and allow evil itself to kill him, God the creator of the world. And by that death, he would achieve what no human mind could conceive, the defeat of sin and Satan and death and the promise of a new creation where there would be no suffering. God is saying to Job, I hate evil. I hate it. And what makes me glorious is that I can get rid of it. God's saying, don't dare suggest that you know how to deal with this problem better than I know, because you can't. But I can. I've planned and prepared a day when I will pay the price for you, Job, so humble yourself and wait on me. Is a terrible arrogance of humans to say, if I were God, I would do X, Y, and Z. Really? You've got no clue how to deal with evil. And history proves that we can't do better than God. God is the God of the cross who shown he has both the power and the wisdom and love to deal with human suffering. And the question is, can you believe that if God is big enough to create everything, then he is big enough to allow your suffering for reasons that perhaps you don't understand? God is perfect in love, in justice, in sovereignty. He sees the end from the beginning, and he knows what he is doing. Knowing that, if you truly knew that, are you able to trust him with what you cannot understand? Because the book of Job, it doesn't give us pat answers. Many of us, would love the pat answer, but all it does is it says, just trust God. He's got a reason for this. And he probably won't tell you what it is. Some of us say, no, 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 I can't do that. I will only trust him if I understand it. Two problems with that is one, that's not trust. And secondly, you're not God. You're expecting to know what God knows. Your brain's not big enough to know what God knows. And if God were to sit down and to explain to you the end from the beginning, you wouldn't have time to understand it all. It's too complex. And so the issue is you trust God. You're not God. Trust him that he's good and wise. I remember when I was younger and I was teaching the kids to swim and I'm at a swimming pool. And there are my kids, they're on the side, and they got their floaties on, right? And I'm like, jump. And they're like, no. And I'm like, jump. And they're like, no, I'm too scared. I'm like, jump. Just trust me. And they're like, they're doing the mathematical computations. Oh, this is not, you know. And they're like, Dad, tell me, how am I gonna be safe here? And, you know, I could talk to them about water density and the biomechanics of my muscles and my ability to kind of, live, you know, and the physics of flotation devices. I could explain it all, but two-year-old's never going to understand that. All she needs to know is I am trustworthy and strong. And the same is true of God. Now, some of you would say, well, so what... You'd say that, you're asking me to trust God like that? That would be to make a leap in the dark, to take a leap in the dark, but it's not. It's the very opposite. Jesus Christ said, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Trusting God is not a leap in the dark. It's a step into the light. It's placing your hands in the one who is in control of everything and who loves you. And yet, some of you are still saying, but I'm still in the dark as to why I'm suffering. Yes, you are. But you're not in the dark as to why you're suffering. You're in the light of the reality of God's love and kindness and majesty and power that wherever you find yourself, He is with you and He's doing something good for you. How could I trust that? Someone once said, Christianity doesn't offer a watertight argument. There's no answer to that question in the book of Job. But there is a watertight person. And his name is Jesus. And, uh, and remarkably, he's a lot like Job. Abandoned by his friends. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer to that question, at least for Jesus, Forsaken for you, for you, for me—that's the proof you need that God can be trusted, that God loves you, that your suffering is not in vain. I want to finish. A friend of mine uh, shared with me uh, the story of her brother, who, um, in uh, 2008, at age 29, died of a of a, of cancer—a horrific form of cancer. He was a for 18 years of his life, he was the epitome of strength and health. Uh, she told me that he played rugby. He swam at an elite level, hoped to get into the Olympic team. And yet after his 18th birthday, he was diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, and uh, she shared, me, shared with me some of his journals. And this is what he says. He says, I know God's goodness and love. If I choose to open my eyes, I see it every day. If I choose to open the world, I will read about it every day. Moreover, I do not believe that this to be a relative truth. I am absolutely convinced by it. And by God's grace, there are many times when my heart is overflowing with these truths. Yet when the fog comes, I do the predictable thing all over again. I battle for visibility. My mind narrows. My brain tightens. I ask, why? How long? What purpose? I know that God is goodness and love, but today it's just not resonating. I'm flesh and bone and today, that flesh can't even carry me outside. What are my options? He writes, today I will choose to lament. I'll put my heart again at the feet of my Lord and Saviour. I'll search hard and fight to remember goodness and joy. I'll remind myself of the truths that I know. I will, by God's grace, cling for one day more. Sometimes that's it. It's all I can do. The fog is thick and all I can manage is one day at a time. And this is the prayer that he concludes with and I'll wrap up with that. Let's pray. This is the prayer of one who laments. Dear God, I know that your love is unfailing even if I don't feel it. But I ask that in your grace you will touch me and give me a sense of your presence at my side. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.